Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. As written about and taught in the United States, the history of post-World War II movies often follows this pattern. Italian neorealism and responses to neorealism, the impact of TV, Hollywood spectacle, the French New Wave and responses to the New Wave, Cold War movies, social realism, movies from Sweden, Japan, and China, Hollywood's second golden age, New German cinema, third world cinema, Hong Kong, Bollywood, Australia, and New Zealand, the rise of the blockbuster, the impact of home video, corporate synergy versus independent production, CGI, international co-production, the impact of the internet, and streaming. We might add to this movie-centric list other sociocultural experiences, including civil rights agitation, anti-colonial independence movements, gender and sexuality-based advocacy, various wars, several epidemics, and more than a handful of economic crises. Then, we might sprinkle in some famous and influential people, both inside and outside the arts, like Kennedy, Gandhi, Kubrick, Warhol, Lucas, Thatcher, Reagan, Beyonce. Finally, we drill into specific movie titles and themes we're interested in exploring. In this idiosyncratic history of post-World War II movies, we continue with the piano and ideology. When I was in college, the movie The Piano was released. I had begun to learn that there was such a thing as a film festival circuit, including places like the Cannes Film Festival, which is where this movie debuted on May 15, 1993. And I believe I saw it in December of that year or potentially early in 1994. It had therefore had months of reputational exposure to whet the appetite. Plus, at that time in my formative experiences in college, I had moved from being a generalist with the kinds of lower division coursework a person is obligated to take, and I'd become a film guy. To pull back a second, I think it's important to realize that we have to consider gender and sex. Obviously, that's often true in our social engagements, but it remains particularly true when we think about a movie like The Piano. Reasons why will become clear. But first, gender, as I think of it, is the sociocultural differences that people express based on a spectrum of traits and behaviors, from masculinity on one extreme to femininity on another, with a lot of other named positions between those two poles, all of which is based on the underlying biology, or sex, of a given person. The chassis is your body. The expression of that body in a social space is a person's gender. Gender changes, sometimes exquisitely and sometimes painfully, even across hours in a day, but certainly across generations. Most of us are locked into our sexed body, but we gender ourselves, and the world genders us as we age, as we try out new professions, as we develop new relationships, and that is true across time, society to society, and has always been the case. As we turn to think about the piano, the important reminder here is we're dealing with the 19th century. In particular, we're dealing with a Scottish woman named Ada McGrath. She hasn't spoken since she was a wee girl. In fact, we hear her talk out loud twice in the movie. 
These two expressions of her speech acts both begin and conclude the movie. Bookends. The voice you hear is not my speaking voice, but my mind's voice. I have not spoken since I was six years old. No one knows why. Not even me. As the movie unwinds, we learn other things about Ada that are equally important. One, she's never been married, but she has a daughter who seems to be nine or ten years old. This is Flora McGrath, played by a very young Anna Paquin, who would earn an Academy Award for this performance, as would Holly Hunter as Ada. They come from some means, and Ada's father has effectively sold her off to an Englishman who's made his home in New Zealand. This guy's name is Alistair Stewart, and he's played by Sam Neill. Around Alistair are a set of extended family members and one other Englishman named George Baines, played by Harvey Keitel. George exists at a liminal space between the white colonizer and the Maori. He's facially tattooed, as are many of the Maori around him. He's capable of speaking in their tongue, although he is illiterate, and that plays a role in the ensuing story. Ada and Flora land in New Zealand, awaiting a pickup at the beach by Alistair, having driven away the sailors who brought him to the shore. Among Ada's most precious possessions is her piano. Alistair refuses to bring the piano from the beach because it is too heavy, so he leaves it on the beach. George takes notice of this, realizes how important it is to Ada, especially because she cannot speak to communicate her needs, can only write pencil to paper, sign language that only she and Flora are able to communicate with one another, or else simper and rage. This is valuable in as much as we learn that Ada is property. Her father has given her away to another man, effectively to get her off his porch, so to speak, along with her child, who is out of wedlock, therefore a bastard, and legitimize both of them by pawning her off on a seemingly wealthy man who's kindly. Alistair appears to be straight-laced, basically hardworking, but very, very inexperienced. It is intuited that he is likely a virgin. It doesn't appear he's ever been married, and it's likely that he doesn't know how to manage a household, but is glad to have a woman join his home and bring with her a child that he can call his own, a ready-made instant family. George is persuaded to bring Ada and Flora back to the beach so Ada can play her piano. George brings the piano back to his home. He negotiates a deal with Ada. She can earn the piano, and he'll give it back to her. What unspools is that George and Ada begin to have a physical relationship. It is also clear that Alistair does not know how to be a husband, but desperately wants physical intimacy with Ada. And of course, Alistair is a cuckold. When finally he realizes what really is going on, he ends up lopping off Ada's index finger to clip her wing and eventually threatens George's life. George agrees to leave behind New Zealand, bringing Flora and Ada with him back to England, where he's from. And as they leave. They're ocean-bound on a large canoe to find a shipping vessel with Ada's piano. 
She asks that it be thrown overboard and entwines her leg with a rope that holds it to the canoe. She's pulled over into the deep, but decides she wishes to live. And from there, we get the second bookended voiceover narration sometime in the future after Ada, George, and Flora have made it to England. I teach piano now in Nelson. George has fashioned me a metal fingertip. I'm quite the town freak, which satisfies. Some of the piano sequences in the movie of Ada playing, of her warming up, of her doodling, but certainly of the set pieces that Michael Nyman wrote the score for and that Holly Hunter actually played by relearning her own craft as a musician from youth is really extraordinary. It's the kind of thing I play on YouTube, little clips, simply to enjoy myself and get a bit misty in the eye. That's one take. This is an extremely romantic story about gendered norms of the past coming to a greater fruition through oddballs finding each other. It's also possible to characterize this movie as an intensely boring, very, very obnoxious version of basically making its lead character into a suitcase traded between men who use and abuse her along the course of her story until she's left with the least bad option, this guy named George. I'm sensitive to that because I can see how that reading is possible. But another thing that comes to mind as I consider the movie, and it's important to the way this thing was released in the 1990s, is it makes evident the importance of non-blockbuster movies that don't come from the epicenters of moviedom, like Hollywood, or of London, or you name your world capital. This comes from New Zealand. It comes at a very low cost, relatively speaking, roughly $7 million in 1993. It earned a boatload of money upwards of $140 million globally, making evident the charge that sometimes unusual movies about unusual people doing unusual things can find an audience. That brings to light the fact that the early 1990s can be looked at as a moment of rising independent film production, distribution, and exhibition. A lot of that channel rested on film festival circuits that would trade around different movies, bringing them into the critical eye where journalism played an extraordinary role in reviewing movies and bringing the good news to the wider public, which is how I learned about the piano in the first place. Then there was a ready-made circuit of art houses to bring these movies into capital cities all across the world, so an intelligentsia of people, like I felt I was in the early 1990s, could turn out and see these movies without having to overtly compete against the likes of the most popular thing. When this does well, the movie has a platform booking that expands over many months, as the piano did, until finally it earns a small fortune. But let's also realize this movie makes evident another key idea, and that is what feminism looks like inside of a movie. If we accept that feminism is a set of activities aimed at establishing an equality politically, economically, and socially for women with men and all of the people who carve themselves out inside of the spectrum between men and women, we see that this movie is feminist in orientation. It is about a woman who has a daughter that the woman is trying to train, that this woman's appetites and needs force the men around her to bend to her will. In fact, her unwillingness or incapability of speaking forces the men around her to read her intentions through things she does not say. 
And Holly Hunter is a small person, very slightly built, but stony in the way she uses her eyes to stare down these opponent men who are adversaries and helpers both. One particular scene that really sticks out on this point, Alistair realizes that George and Ada have something going on, and he restricts them from seeing one another, whereupon Ada tries to cuddle up to him, but on her own terms. Alistair has tried to push his advantage and sexually assault her, and she embarrassed him away from following through. In this scene, he's in his bed, and she begins to massage his body. He wishes to touch her. She refuses his touch. She loosens his pants, begins to massage his buttocks. He grows intensely uncomfortable and cannot stand it. This power of womanhood, this small person, Holly Hunter, taking charge in a bedroom scene with a man in an unconventional way to prove her power over him, in fact, to put fear in him, is quite remarkable because only a few minutes later, he will lop off her finger in retaliation because he cannot control her. That is something that resonates, I believe, very strongly with a lot of women who have experienced the way that men's bodies, strengths, and technologies can be wielded and used against them. But more to the point, one thing that makes this movie a particularly valuable feminist document is its director-writer, Jane Campion, who's a huge figure in Australian and New Zealand cinema, writes this movie, directs this movie. It is produced by Jan Chapman, who would become a collaborator with her over the course of years. It is edited by Veronica Jeanette, and most of the story's action surrounds Ada. That is a kind of gynocentrism that many movies do not possess, which is exceptional to the nature of how movies usually work. Now, It is entirely possible for a person to find themselves bored in this movie. But one signature detail that crops up over and over again is how this movie self-consciously worries about the act of seeing. In fact, the opening of the movie, as we hear Ada describe her life from her perspective in voiceover, is seen through her fingers. And we don't know quite what we're looking at at first. Periodically, the movie forces us to deal with the idea of scopophilia. In one very memorable encounter in the movie, Alistair sneaks up on George's cabin and sees George and Ada begin to make love. Rather than barge in and beat them, he decides instead to just use a spy hole in the slats of the cabin and watch. We see him enjoying the same sort of fetishized, scopophilic behavior that we are generally enjoying when we go to a movie and sit in the dark and watch things we don't typically see, like a couple making love. Another memorable moment is when these white settlers in this part of New Zealand want to put on a Christmas festival of sorts in their local church, which involves some stagecraft, some lighting effects, but to effectively tell the story of a monster who lops the heads off his wives and suspends them on the wall. This is all just a trick of people placing their heads through a sheet with red paint to represent blood, but the Maori folks of this neighborhood who are invited to take part in and watch this play haven't seen this sort of illusion before, and they're spooked, drawing daggers to defend defend these women, and make sure this monster doesn't hurt them. It's played for laughs, but we watch how the show is produced, how it is seen and experienced by the audience that is not hip to this set of illusions, and we watch how they are taught this is all just pretend. I have always responded to Holly Hunter since I first met her in a movie, and I think that was in broadcast news. She stomps her feet, 
She remains pressed into this really oppressive set of Victorian layered clothes until she disrobes and begins to relax with George, which is startling. Spoiler, we're going to see full frontal male nudity in this movie, of which I am a terrific fan and have long celebrated Harvey Keitel since he had several turns doing this in the early 1990s. You roll all of this together and what you're left with is a very satisfying, chewy, difficult and complex document of female desire restricted in a male-dominated world where this gendered feminine persona of Ada McGrath is able to twist these menfolk around her and come out the other side with the one she prefers, George, who loves her back. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Boop boobity doo.